Family of God, it's good to see you tonight. How are you? All 18 of you. If you're able to, would you stand up on your feet tonight as we prepare our hearts for worship? Psalmist said that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. And so everything is his and everything is established by him and founded by him and we're always in the presence of God whether we want to acknowledge that or not. But what worship is, is worship is the act of acknowledging that we are always on holy ground, that we're always in the presence of God and that that's good for us. <laughs> the psalmist said elsewhere, he said, it is good to be near to God. God made the sovereign Lord my refuge and I will tell of all your deeds. And so I don't know what you're bringing in tonight and I don't know where your head's at, your heart's at. Maybe you're walking in and you just killed it this week and everything was working for you, and if that's the case, you have somebody to thank. Open your heart tonight and let Thanksgiving pour out. It might be that tonight you're wandering in and you're pretty battered and you're confused and you're having difficulty kind of picking yourself up off the mat. In fact, maybe it's, it was even difficult to get here tonight. If you're watching online, it might be that you just couldn't even leave your house. It's too, uh. And the presence of God is for you, it's for all of us. Jesus said, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and let him drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, this is the great part, Jesus said, rivers of living water will gush up from within him. What that means is that somehow Jesus quenches every existential and practical thirst of our lives. And to the extent that our thirsts are quenched by Jesus, what happens is we become thirst quenchers for others. What I'm saying tonight is that we're on holy ground. What I'm saying tonight is that nobody's excluded. What I'm saying tonight is that the presence of God is for each and every one of us. And so with that in your heart, would you lift up your hands? That's our response to the Lord. We lift up our hands to you. We lift up our hands in the holy place tonight and we just pray that you would let rivers of worship flow from us tonight. Lord, if we're in a place of Thanksgiving, we ask that Thanksgiving would flow. If there's gratitude in our hearts for the good things that you've done, we're asking that we would exhaust ourselves with our Thanksgiving tonight. And if we're at the absolute bottom, if we're in the pit, I pray, Lord, that we would lament and cry and wail, that we would make you our ultimate point of reference tonight, that we would recognize that our complaints and our lamentations and the bitterness of our spirit, that it belongs in your presence, that everything belongs in your presence, that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere and they see it all and you're welcoming it all. So move upon us, Spirit, we pray, move upon us. Spirit, we pray, Jesus Christ, we ask that you would rise up in us tonight. We pray that you would enable our worship and enable our praise and enable our thanksgiving. And we ask that when we go home tonight, we'd really be able to say that we were on holy ground. So grant that we're asking. We say tonight, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. So Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship together. All right, everyone. It's good to be together in the house of God. Come on, let's lift our spirits, lift our praise to the one true King. He is our answer. He is the answer. Let's sing strong together. Here we go. I praise the Don't. 
God, you are a rock. You are a rock, you are our anchor, you are our cornerstone. Guys, let's cling to the lyrics of this song. Christ alone, cornerstone. Weak made strong in the Savior's love. Wherever you're at, claim these words for yourself tonight, okay? It's the truth. It's our answer. Here we go.
surprises you and aren't we grateful for that God help us receive what you have for us tonight wherever you're at I pray that you can receive this next song as a blessing if you need to receive it just open your hands like this if you're in a place where you can speak it out you can sing it out over the people around you then sing it strong speak it out okay we know this one it's powerful let's sing it together
You know, we're, we're sort of accustomed to saying it a little bit, a little bit flippantly, you know, kind of to let God know when we're done, you know, done asking for things. But uh, a, a friend of mine has a, a five-year-old son, and he lets his son pray at, at dinner. And his son was, um, you know, thank you for this food. Thank you for this table. 
light. You, you know how they do. Mine do it. My friend, he grew a little bit impatient. He said, uh, wrap it up. <laughs> Amen. So um, we, we got invited to their house for dinner. Um, that's now become a thing again. We're very thankful. And we went to uh, the house for dinner, and the son got to, got to pray for dinner. So thank you. God, thank you for this, this day. Thank you for this food. Wrap it up. Amen. <laughs> Part of the prayer. <laughs> but as we do, you know, wrap it up. Amen. We miss what amen means. It means I agree. You know, we're putting ourselves into the story. You know, I agree. Let it be. Wrap it up. Amen. God, through the person of Jesus, taught us how to pray. Thank God. And there's an amen at the end of this prayer. And we're gonna we're gonna say the Lord's prayer together, and then we're gonna say Amen at to the end of it. And this band is gonna lead us again through through saying Amen. And would, would would you would you dwell on on this blessing that we're singing about this lavish blessing that is yours in Christ? And the Amen is not wrap it up Amen. The Amen is I agree. We receive it, Lord Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The words are on the screen. Let's say this together. They will be on the screen. Do you think you can just do it? I think we can just do it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Brine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's agree together today.
wrap it up, amen. I do like that. It's funny. Use that sometime. Good to see you tonight, New Life East. Uh, if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn and then to the book of James, chapter 4. James is towards the end of the New Testament. Uh, if you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Just back up a little bit. And uh, we're going to be in a great little passage here. I love this because of how much of a sort of uh, bucket of ice water on the head it is. This is a great passage tonight. It's good to see you this weekend, by the way, 4th of July weekend. So nice to have you here tonight. I've got family in town tonight. My mom and my dad and my brother and my sister are right over here. Bill and Nancy and Anna and John are in the house. So it's just good to be together tonight. James chapter 4, if you have Bibles and you're there, why don't you let me know by saying I'm there. Okay, good. All right. Let's pause for a minute. Recognize the moment that we're in. Recognize whose presence we're in. Would you just still yourself here? Sometimes in the middle of a week and with a busy weekend coming up, I'm sure you got a lot of plans. It's easy for your mind to be a thousand different directions, but it doesn't need to be anywhere else but right here, right now. It's important for us just to come and to become centered in our, in our bodies and to become aware. God is not just a presence floating above our head, but Jesus Christ took a body. Our God is a human being forever and always. He never lays aside his human body and via his human body, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's bringing our human bodies into alignment with his gracious rule and reign. And when we come into the house of God, we're submitting ourselves to that. We're yielding to that one more time. And so Jesus Christ, son of the living God, incarnate one, born of the Virgin Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we submit to you tonight. We say yes to you tonight. We thank you that the scriptures are not idle words. Moses said, these scriptures are your life. Jesus, you said that the scriptures testify about you. Paul said that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. We believe that these are not just idle words written on a page, but we think that just like you take the bread and the cup, and you lift them up, and you bless them, and you break them, and you make them more, so... You're taking this ancient collection of texts and you're weaving it together and making it the very word of God for us now. Lord, I pray that none of us will go home tonight feeling like you haven't spoken to us. I pray that somehow a Pentecost would happen tonight, that the power of the Holy Spirit would descend into my words and that each person in this room would hear me declaring the wonders of God in their own tongue and in their own situation, that somehow it would make sense for them. I'm asking, I'm actually pleading with you for that, please come and do that, Lord Jesus. We pray that your care for your people would radiate through these words tonight. We ask that you would reclaim us wherever we need to be reclaimed. We're asking that the fire of the Spirit would descend. Come. We pray may the words of the preacher's mouth now and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. James says, verse 13 in chapter 4, he says, now listen. When the Bible writers say listen, we should listen. He says, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city and spend a year there, carry on business, and make some money. But why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow? But what is your life, James says? You are a mist, everybody say mist. You're a mist. That appears for a little while, everybody say a little while. 
Okay, and then it vanishes. Everybody say vanishes. Miss, little while, vanishes. Okay. Instead, he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills it, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. The Greek word there is paneros. It means morally empty. So whatever it is you're doing is not actually making you a better human being. It, as it turns out, even if it feels good when you're doing it, that mental state that you're in that allows you to say, today or tomorrow, we're gonna go here and there and we're gonna do all that. James says that it's actually corrupting you morally in some way, which is what we're gonna see in a second. All such boasting, he says, is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, James, did you not get enough sleep last night? You're just a little cranky? Because it's gotten heavy, you know? The first couple chapters started out, they were positive and encouraging. In some ways, you had nice things to say. But all of a sudden, in chapter three, man, James locks it in with harsh words. He starts talking about the use of the tongue. He starts tra- talking about true and false wisdom, the false wisdom that is actually demonic, and it's from the devil. He talks about fights and quarrels, wars, and battles like we learned last week. And now all of a sudden, he's putting wealthy people on trial. Wealthy people that are saying today and tomorrow, we're gonna go here and there, we're gonna do all of this stuff. There's a kind of hubris that he's taking aim at. And really, in so many ways, what he's doing is he's kind of bringing a a critique of the rich and the powerful and the ways in which that can corrupt you morally and spiritually. He's really bringing that critique to a sort of crescendo. He's alluded to it before, James chapter one, Starting in verse nine, he says that believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So if you're in a place where you've been humiliated in some way, life has pushed you down. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom. James is alluding to that. He's saying you're actually in a high position, but he says, but the rich should take pride in their what? What does the text say? Their humiliation, why is that? Because they're gonna pass away like the wild flower. So James has already alluded to it. In the next verse here, look up on the screen with me. We're going to James chapter, where is it? Help me out here, guys. Help me out here. I need that. James chapter 2 and verse 5. Put it up on the screen if you got it. Do we have it? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? So here he's doing it again. This sort of favoritism that's shown for those that can't make grandiose plans for the next six months, nine months, five years, those folks that don't have the 20-year plan all put together. He says that God has chosen those people, those who are poor in the eyes of the world. He's chosen them to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised to those who love him. But verse six, but you, he says, have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? See, there's something about the agency that the rich have that puts them in this morally precarious position where they think that they can take advantage of people. They're exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Verse seven, Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So James seems to think that if we have the agency to plan in an extensive way for the future, we might actually not be in a very good spiritual place. There are spiritual perils that accrue to that life situation. James chapter three and verse 16, one more time, he's talking again to those people that have some agency in society. And he says that where you have envy and selfish ambition, listen, the poor don't have a lot of selfish ambition, okay? It's folks like us, folks that have means, folks that have ability. We can have envy and selfish ambition. He says that place, you find disorder and every evil practice. So one of the things that we start seeing then in this text here, in verse 13, 
is that James thinks that it is a spiritual disadvantage to be rich and powerful. But just let that sink in for a second. But it's so different from the way that we think. We think, it's sort of our 21st century modern, wealthy, American, Western world, we think that it might be an advantage to us spiritually to be wealthy and powerful because we've got the luxury then, you know, to devote time to all of those sort of pursuits that make us more spiritually whole and sound and robust. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, we got all the basic needs figured out and now we can sort of ascend to self-actualization. But he thinks it's a disadvantage to be rich and powerful because, and this is the reason, it tends to lead to an arrogant and unwarranted certitude about the future. We start thinking that we know more about what is coming down the pike than we really do. This is verse 13. It doesn't exactly come through in the NIV, but four separate times, James uses the future tense to talk about these people. We will go. We will spend. We will do business. And we will make money. Oh, you will? But you know this? You can predict this? You have some kind of evidence that this is going to be the case? Are you, are you sure about that? You're positive that a year from now, or two years from now, or five years from now, you're gonna be in this place, and you're gonna be doing that thing, and you're gonna be living in that city, and you're gonna have this job, and you're just gonna be killing it. You know that? You can predict that? You have some kind of insight into the future, and James says that all such boasting like that, it's arrogance, it's folly, it's sin. He calls it paneros. It's morally empty, it's morally evil. It actually does wicked things to our souls. The biblical witness, brothers and sisters, which James is tapping into here, from beginning to end is a single unrelenting assault on empty certitude about the future. It's an assault on empty certitude about the future. Think about some of the great texts of the Old Testament. This is Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 6. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All people are like, say loud, grass. They're not like skyscrapers. They're not like monuments. They're not like continents. When Isaiah reaches for a metaphor to talk about what human beings are like, he goes, all the people are just like grass. All their faithfulness, their glory is like the flowers of the fields. Verse 7, the grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Then he repeats it, surely the people or grass, verse eight. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but what endures? The word of the Lord endures forever. That there is reality that is constant and stable and firm underneath our feet. And I have news for you. You are not that reality. James says that you're a mist. James says that you're a vapor, just like Isaiah said, verse 22. He says that the Lord sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and he spreads them out like a tent to live in. Verse 23, he brings princes to naught. The powerful of the earth, those that think that they've got it all figured out, those that have agency to build for the future and think that they can predict the future. Isaiah says that the everlasting God brings princes to naught, and he reduces the world, the rulers of this world to nothing. Verse 24, no sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. But Isaiah looks at this world that we build, a world of 
companies and monuments and skyscrapers and thrones and palaces and powers and rulers and dominions, the things in our world that look so large and imposing. And he goes, this is what you need to know about God Almighty. That with the breath of his mouth, he'll sweep all of it away. And you think it's so permanent and you think that it's so secure and you think that it's so lasting. And you let pride and arrogance rise up in your heart on the basis of this false idea of how secure you really are. The biblical witness is a single unrelenting assault on empty certitude about the future. And when you look at the Old Testament, one of the things that you see is that that assault can swing a couple different ways. On the one hand, it can become great hope for God's people. One of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 37, says hope for the Lord and keep his way. He's talking to people that are being mistreated by the arrogant, rich, and powerful. Hope in the Lord and keep his way. He will exalt you to inherit the land. And when the wicked are destroyed, you will see it. Verse 35, I've seen a wicked and ruthless man flourishing like a luxuriant native tree. Verse 36, but he, what's the word there? Soon, he soon passed away. Yeah, it seems all permanent in the moment, but he soon passed away and he was no more. And though I looked for him, he couldn't be found. Verse 37, but consider the blameless and observe the upright The future awaits those who are not just trying to build a big future for themselves, but the future awaits those who will devote themselves to something larger than themselves. When Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, Mary's son, the Jewish kid from Nazareth in Galilee, you better believe that he was meditating on these texts when he was a boy and an adolescent and in his his 20s when, when Jesus starts teaching, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, you better believe that he was anchoring himself in these texts. That what we don't do is make big plans for our future, but what we do is we devote ourselves to the will of God. The future awaits those who seek peace. All sinners, the psalmist said, will be destroyed. And there is no future for the wicked. So it can swing in the direction of comfort for God's people, hope for God's people. But I think even more commonly, it swings in the direction of putting God's people in a place of great spiritual sobriety. Everybody say sobriety. Sobriety, clear-minded, clear-hearted, grasping the situation rightly. Psalm 90, the psalmist said, O Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you Our God, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a a watch in the night. Think about that. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like, the there it is, the new grass of the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by the evening it is dry and withered. Think about that, brothers and sisters. The best of us, the most powerful among us, The strongest among us, the psalmist said, Isaiah said, James said, it's just grass, it's vapor, it's nothing, it's it's fleeting, you can't plan for it. In the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. And then he says in verse 12, teach us to number our days, or an old translation says, teach us thus to know our days. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Brothers and sisters, James insists that we become morally good and spiritually sound just to the extent that we remember two things. Number one, that our life is vapor. 
It's like spiritually salubrious. It's good for us. To remember that our life is a passing mist, that it's a breeze, that it doesn't endure, that our life is vapor, number one, and then number two, that God is our absolute point of reference. In all things, at all times, it is God with whom you deal. And the wicked, by definition, in the scriptures are the people who forget this or choose to live as though it's not true. They choose to live as though they're going to be forever, as though life is there for the taking. They choose to live as though they're not accountable in some way to God. That's what it means to be wicked. That's where the opposite is true. When you don't think that your life is a vapor, when you think it's forever, and when you don't think that God is your point of reference, what it does is it corrupts you and it leads to madness of heart, madness of mind. None of us can predict the future. None of us know what's coming down the pike. And the life of wisdom is not a life of trying to scramble to sort of make sense of all that. The life of wisdom in the scriptures is the life of throwing ourselves into the uncertainty, knowing that God is there to meet us in the uncertainty. Are you with me tonight? None of us knows what's going to happen. And we come up with all of these great plans, six-month plans, one-year plans, five-year plans, 15-year plans. And how many of us one year ago were talking about COVID-19? Right? A year ago, we had incredible plans for what we were going to do in 2020. Even six months ago, we had incredible plans about what we were going to do in 2020. For the Arndt family, this was going to be a year of travel. We had places, destinations we were going to see all over the United States. And we had friends that we were going to visit and things that we were going to do. Mandy and I are celebrating our 20-year anniversary next month in August. I was going to take her to Europe. Man, it was going to be great. I had a Uganda trip planned with a friend. We had all this stuff, and I just knew that 2020 was just going to be like that. And then what? Corona who? Did what? And like, like the blink of an eye, like everything just, it just changed. And people lost their ever-loving minds. And you all went out that first weekend after coronavirus hit, and the shelves are barren and empty, and I did it too. I had a grocery cart that was full of all kinds of absurdities because we were playing it for the end of the world. And you walk up and down the, the aisles, you know, and there's no toilet paper left. As God is my witness, we're five months removed from the fact and nobody has ever been able to give me an explanation as to why toilet paper was like the thing that everybody had to have. But we lost our minds, guys. We lost our minds because more, our security was more in the future than it was in some sense of who God is and what it means to be human. Are you with me? And when you think about all the rioting and the protesting and the anger and the vitriol, so much of that was right in light of what happened to George Floyd up in Minneapolis. But I'm telling you, a lot of the stuff that happened just came because people were stressed out emotionally. And do you know why they were stressed out emotionally? Because their plans were wrecked. Because everything had changed. And they did not have spiritual resources to cope with that. Guys, to the extent that we cannot cope with change when it comes to us, that is the litmus test of our hubris. <laughs> we make these huge plans and we locate ourselves existentially in a future that we have no guarantee will happen. And sometimes people of faith even get caught up in this, you know? That what we think is we think, well... You know, when I was an unbeliever, when I didn't know the Lord, you know, I didn't really have any certainty about the future. 
But then I got to know Jesus. And Jesus really gave me security for the future. He let me know that I would be happy and healthy and wealthy and my kids would all grow up to love Jesus and everybody would be wonderful and everything. And what you find is that even following Jesus increases the uncertainty. Because you never know what things that Jesus is going to ask you to do. And you never know where he's going to lead you. And you never know what new things are going to come down the pike that you have to respond to. But the Lord Jesus, let me say it to you as clearly as I can say it. The Lord Jesus, and our following the Lord Jesus, does not secure us from time. And the way in which time and circumstance batter our little plans to pieces. The Lord Jesus does not secure us from time. The Lord Jesus secures us in time. So that we can be fleet of feet and responsive to the things that are happening in front of us. So that we're not knocked off of our bearings when a global pandemic hits. That we find a way to remain firm like Peter walking on the water. That it shouldn't be the case that we're okay. But we find a way to be okay. Not because we're protected from time. But because we're protected in time by the Lord Jesus. Are you with me tonight? So much of this, brothers and sisters, comes from grappling rightly with our mortality. Grappling rightly. Too many of us, too many of us who are believers, we treat this life that we are in right now as though it is the kingdom come. Guys, stuff is gonna happen to you if it hasn't already. You're gonna get sick and you're gonna lose jobs and things are going to happen. Relationships are going to explode. Economies are gonna go sideways. Things are going to happen. And if you're all disturbed by that, it shows that there's something that you haven't deepened in yourself morally and spiritually. The people, people of faith at their best are people who have learned to accept as a reality the day of their mortality. And they've actually come to make it a source of spiritual strength and wisdom for them. Are you with me tonight? One of the desert fathers, Abba Evagrius, back in the fourth century, said it like this. He said, remember the day of your death. The Desert Fathers had this way of always, their spirituality was they always, they lived every day as though the day of death was right in front of them. Evagrius said, remember the day of your death so as to be able to live in peace. Isn't that counterintuitive? The day of your death, isn't that kind of morbid? Evagrius, how about raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens? Why don't we, like the way to live in peace is by thinking positive and happy thoughts all the time. What I need to do is I need to have a solitude retreat and I just need to, I need a vacation. I need to suntan. I need to, no. What Evagrius says is he goes, if you keep the day of your death, if you keep your mortality in front of your face at all times, it actually will be for you a source of peace, of serenity, of shalom. He said elsewhere, always keep in mind the day of your death. Then there will be no fault in your soul. That grappling with our mortality, guys, makes us good. It makes us wise. That when we learn to live our lives before the very presence of God, when we learn to live our lives holding those lives loosely, I'm telling you, something changes in us. That's why James says that when you make all those grandiose plans and you just behave like some arrogant twit, that you just know what's going to happen, he says it's morally corrupting. But when you hold your life loosely, knowing that, listen, there were eons stretched out before you, before you arrived on planet Earth. And when we talk, with the way that we talk about the future in Christianity is that we look for the life, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, the everlasting life. Do you understand that there's limitless time 
stretched out in front of you. So we don't invest too much in our idea of what this is. But what we're doing is we're trying to write our souls for the coming time of God, for the kingdom of God. Remember, this point was driven home to me a couple years back. I was getting to know, Mandy and I have been in this community a little over three years. And one of my very good friends that I made shortly into our time here is Jack Tistammer, Pastor Matthew Tistammer's dad. Jack, a good, godly man and in his mid-60s, just strong as an ox, tough as an old piece of leather. Jack, the everyman's man, a great man. And Jack, all of a sudden, uh, had some physical challenges, kind of came out of nowhere, and he went to see the doctor, and the doctor did some tests on him, and they found a brain tumor for Jack, an incurable brain tumor. And Jack went through a number of rounds of tests and treatment and all this stuff to try to get it right, and he fought like you would expect Jack to fight, fought like an angry wolverine is what he did, which I think wolverines are always angry, but I've never met one. (laughs) He fought and he fought and he fought, but he also carried himself. This was the thing that was so impressive to me, is that he carried himself with such dignity as he walked through it. And I remember sitting with Jack over coffee one day, and I said to him, Jack, this is Jack, had been given just a few months to live, and I said, Jack, it's looking like short of a miracle that you're approaching the end pretty soon here. I said, and I just wanna know, spiritually, what has that done for you? Talk to me about the impact that that has had on your soul, on your lived faith in Jesus. What has that done? And he looked at me and he was instant with this. He said, well, he said, in the first place, I care a whole lot less about what other people think about me. (laughs) I love that. Which I didn't know that Jack cared a lot about what anybody thought about him anyway. So that's like a lot, a lot less. He said, I care a lot less about what other people think about me. He goes, you know, when you've come to grips with the fact that you might drop dead at any moment, what the barista behind the counter thinks about you is a lot less important to you. You know what I mean? Just doesn't matter all that much. He said, I don't care that much about what people think about me. He said, but the funny thing is, now listen to this. He said, in letting go of what other people think about me, he said, I find that I care more for people than I've ever cared for them before. Something coming right there in the soul. And then he said this. He said the third thing is, God is more present to me than he has ever been to me in my entire life. And I remember being so struck by that conversation because I thought, do you know what? Christians are people who believe that they have already died and that their life is hid with Christ in God. I mean, there's a lot of different metaphors and images and meanings that collect around our baptism. One of them is that baptism is putting the ring on our finger. But the other thing that baptism is, you know what baptism is, brothers and sisters? It's a funeral service. The dead don't care what other people think about them. But those who have been made alive with Christ care for people very much, don't they? And they're very aware of the presence of God. And the call of believers is to live their lives, to be ready at a moment's notice to fling their lives into the hands of God. Which is why Paul says, not only have you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, but every day you're called to mortify yourself, to put yourself to death, to pretend as though today might be the last day, and therefore to live it in a way that glorifies God and blesses People, are you with me tonight, brothers and sisters? Our learning to accept that, to accept the fact of our mortality is actually a great spiritual liberation for us. And I I know that, speaking from experience, back in 2009, Mandy and I moved to Denver. 
to help some friends plant a church. And I was 28 years old at the time. We had three little kids, and this was my first big opportunity to kind of put my stamp on something and really do something great for Jesus, you know. And I remember God, we got out there in 2009, and if you had talked to me back then and said, hey, Andrew, what do you feel like the Lord is calling you to, and what's this whole thing going to be? I would have said 30 years of work in this city. That's what we're going to do. We're going to do 30 years of work, and we're going to love these people well, and we're going to build with all of our might and with all of our heart, and we're going to plant churches everywhere, and we're going to do all this stuff. I had the whole thing figured out, and God blessed so much of that, and I constantly said to people, 30 years, 30 years, this is a 30-year work. We're gonna, I'm going to do this until I'm an old man, and then I'm going to be pastor emeritus, you know, here, and I'm gonna, I hope I die preaching in this pulpit. I would have said that to you and back in 2016. The Lord started changing our plans in such a profound way. And it was one of those things where you looked around at what was happening in front of you and what was happening in front of you did not square with your idea of the future. And we began to realize, we began to discern that God was shifting us into new space and into new territory. And I'm telling you, it was existentially terrifying and disorienting for me, much more than it should have been. Do you know why? Because my whole idea of what it meant to be Andrew Arndt was bound up with my idea of the future. But this can't be happening to me. I'm the pastor of this church in this city doing this thing. Plus, Lord, I've been here for like seven years now, and I've already kind of built up a reputation in you. And I walk in the room, people know me as the guy that does like this thing. Oh, you're Andrew Arndt at Bloom Church, and you guys lead the neo-monastic, liturgical, charismatic network of house churches, right? You're that guy. I've heard about you. Like, so cool, it's my calling card, that's my thing. But Lord, if you take this thing away from me, then who am I? And that is the point, isn't it? That's the point, isn't it? That what happens is we identify ourselves so much with our idea of the future and our great plans and all of that. And Christians are not people who identify themselves by their address, and by their business and by their stuff that they do. Christians are people who identify themselves with Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. What they've done is they've thrown all of their eggs in the basket of the story of how God is with us in Jesus. And if they know themselves at all, they know themselves in approximate way. They know themselves with reference to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And I'm telling you, the two years that followed after that, letting that where it go were so disorienting for me. I found that I, I couldn't, I remember talking with my spiritual director one day. I went to Oral Roberts University for college way back in the day, and Oral Roberts used to ma- say, make no small plans here. Make no small plans here. And I remember telling my spiritual director one day, I said, I feel like the Lord has led me to a place where my motto is just make no plans. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know where he's leading. I don't know how he's calling And do you know what I have discovered? I can live without knowing. I don't have to. And it's actually liberating. It's liberating to be able to wake up in the morning and go, what's that? I'm breathing again. Thanks be to God. He's given me at least another 12 hours. The sun is rising upon me today. And I'm surrounded by people who love me and friends that care about me and I have meaningful work. I've got those things. So what am I going to do today? I'm going to ball out is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give my best to this moment, this day, and I'm going to lay my head on my pillow at night. And I'm going to say with the psalmist, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
that what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my whole life and I'm going to put it in the hands of God. And if I wake up again the next morning and I'm still breathing, I'm going to give it another shot. And if I stack up enough days like that, I might just be able to look back upon my life and say that it was a pretty meaningful life. Guys, people that live this way live without fear. People that live this way live open-handed. They live joyful. They live free because something has gotten right-sized in their souls. They're not grasping the future, but they're opening their hands up to the future, and they're yielding their life and their energy into the hands of God who holds all of our ways. We are becoming now the creatures that we will forever be. The great Dallas Willard used to say that. And the question is, what kind of creatures are we becoming? Are we becoming creatures who hold on tightly to our lives? If that is the case, then eternity is going to be hell for you. You'll never be able to receive the goodness of God because you're clutching this stupid thing that's just going to, it's all going to burn away. It's all going to burn away. And in eternity, you will starve amid abundance because God is trying to give his goodness to you and you're still holding on to your life with clenched fists. James says, don't make your grandiose plans for the future. I mean, be responsible with what you're doing. That's fine. But Christians aren't people who say, we will, we will, we will, we will. Christians are people who say, verse 14 of chapter four, if it is the Lord's will, we will go here and there and we will do this or that thing if the Lord wills it. Like Christians are people who say, we're gonna make the best plans that we can think of and if God is gracious to us, then we'll see those plans through. Hey, I, I think that the Lord is leading me in this direction, so I'm gonna do the best that I can. This isn't an excuse for laziness. We work hard and we plan well. We go, I'm gonna do the best that I can with this, but at the end of the day, it's in God's hands, right? And, and whatever happens, even if I totally misread what I think the Lord is doing in this moment, we're gonna be okay. And even if I walk down this path and the whole thing blows to smithereens, I belong to God. We're gonna be okay, that's how Christians talk. We talk that way because we are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. We said in John 6, 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the Spirit's presence in our lives, brothers and sisters, is to make us like Jesus. What the Spirit does in us is the Spirit causes us to, our hands to peel back off of those lives. And what we do is we get to the place where as the Christ life is worked in us, that we can say to the people around us, we have come to do not our own will, but the will of the one who sent us. And we don't say that as some kind of morbid, morose thing, but it's positive joy and it's freedom, it's invitational. We're gonna come to the Lord's table in just a second here, one final story, and then we'll go there. Been reading recently the works of a great 20th century saint, 19th century saint actually, she died in the early 1900s, a French woman, Therese Lesieux. She was the youngest of nine kids. Her parents were devoted Catholics. And when she was a very young woman, she felt the Lord calling her to give her life uh, to the Lord in a convent. So she joined a convent, became a nun, and she starts working through the process of holy orders, making her profession and all of that. And Therese was this remarkable woman. She was later canonized, Saint Therese of Lisieux known for her little way of love. In fact, she was a great inspiration for Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who copied, patterned so much of her own spirituality off of this first Therese. And yeah, Therese was so remarkable, her little way of love. She just constantly found, she ran from the spotlight and was constantly trying to serve people in these sort of 
unknown ways, tucked into the life of, of the convent. And when she was 17 years old, she made her profession as a nun. And she, Therese, one of the th other things that marked her life was that she had this, she lived with this sense that she was going to die very young. And because of that, she always held her life loosely. And in fact, she did die young. At 24 years old, she died of tuberculosis. And it was probably, I don't know, however many years later, not too long after that, they canonized her for her life. It was a remarkable life. But because she held her life that loosely, she lived this remarkable existence. And after she made her profession at 17 years old, she has this great little line in her spiritual autobiography where she says this, and I wrote it on my whiteboard and I've meditated on this for months now because I think that this is the heart of those who are holding their lives loosely. After she made her profession and gave her life in a profound way to the Lord, she said that my only desire now is to love Jesus even unto folly. called to make our lives an offering to the Lord. That's what we're called to do. And the great joy of our lives is to bundle them up and then to cast them daily at the mercy. My only desire now is to love Jesus even unto folly. We're throwing our lives away constantly and we're holding it loosely and we're yielding it to the Lord. And Paul says that we have been made fools for Christ. He said we're a spectacle to the whole universe and that man lit up the ancient Mediterranean world with the love of God because he held his life in that way. That's what we're called to. And when we come to the table of the Lord, guys, that's what we're doing. We're saying one more time, Jesus, it's all yours. Everything that I am and everything that I have, it belongs to you. You have given your whole self to me. I now, and here, I give my whole self to you. And with that, let's stand tonight and begin to search our hearts as we prepare ourselves for communion. The scripture calls us to con to confess our sins as we come to the table, to examine our hearts. And what love does is love impels us to cast our lives at the mercy. And so what we repent of when we come to the table is we repent of our lack of love. We repent of the ways in which we've lived arrogantly and we've lived selfishly and we've not made our lives a foolish offering unto the Lord, but we've held on to them tightly. And so with that, I wanna invite you to make this confession as we prepare our hearts for communion. Say it with me tonight, brothers and sisters most merciful God. We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will, that's it, and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, the scripture says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Y'all are new creations in Christ Jesus. If you can agree with that tonight, let's, let's give God praise. Open up your hearts. We say thank you, Jesus. And we receive that. We're gonna sing this song together, brothers and sisters, and I'll be back up in a few minutes to lead us to the table. Let's sing together.
sisters tonight I say to you the Lord be with you and also with you. come on say it real loud the Lord be with you and also with you let's lift up our hearts lift them up to the Lord let us give thanks to the Lord our God it is right to give him thanks <laughs> it is good <laughs> and it is right to give you thanks and praise O Lord our God for what you have done for us for you did not despise the cross and you did not shrink back from death, and you did not hold on to your life, and that was our salvation. And so we come to you tonight thanking you for that, and we're asking that the very life that you gave to us would work its way into us, that we would not despise the day of our death, that we would fling our lives away, that we would make our lives an offering for others. So here it is. We pray now that bread and cup would become more than bread and cup that it would become for us a very real contact with the person of Jesus Christ. Granted, we're asking tonight, brothers and sisters, the body of Christ broken for you. Let's receive it together. And the blood of Christ poured out for you to make you whole. Let's receive this together. Let's lift up our hearts in adoration and thanksgiving and praise and worship one more time. We say thank you, Lord Jesus. We bless you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are and all that you have been and all that you will be. And we put our lives here and now in your hands. We ask that you would take them and bless them and break them and use them to bless the world. Grant that we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And now open your hands, brothers and sisters, and receive this, our benediction. As you go from this place, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you 
and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you. You are loved. You can dismiss yourself as you're wanting to go. Just go. You know, we're not dismissing by sections anymore. So good to see your faces tonight. Have a wonderful and safe Fourth of July weekend. Those of you that joined us online, we'll see you soon. Blessings on your heads. You're loved. We'll see you soon next week.